The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Okay, let's take our Bibles, if you would now, and uh, let's open to Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28. It's been 12 years since our study of the tabernacle. Uh, I don't. How many of you were here when we did tabernacle before? All right, we got about half, maybe a little bit less than half of you. Uh, it doesn't seem like 12 years to me. Uh, I guess I'm so close to the material and everything that uh, it just seems like yesterday that yesterday that we talked about that about this, but I've told you many times before that uh, tabernacle worship is one of my all-time favorite subjects, and I explained this a long, long time ago, that I love the study because this is one of my dad's favorites. Every few years, he would go through the tabernacle, and and uh, he would do that so that people that hadn't had the, the benefit of it would get the benefits of this marvelous teaching about Christ, and that devotion that my dad had to uh, lift up Christ has stuck with me all of these years. And I believe that as gospel ministers, we do owe it to the people that we serve to give as much of a comprehensive understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for us as we can. Now we've seen in the, even though we're not going through the tabernacle proper, we have seen in the exposition of the sacrifices how intricate and how extraordinary and how personal the work of Christ is. And as we continue to look at the priesthood, we can't be less than, than amazed at the wonderful redemption that we have with a great high priest who is not satisfied with anything less than to bring us into relationship with God. So I'm pleased that we, that we do have this vehicle for understanding Christ by visiting the tabernacle in these uh, sermons once again, so we can talk about worship and about the priesthood, the sacrifices. So we're opened up again to these glorious truths that are just rarely discussed in in uh, modern church services. And I might ask that question too. How many of you have ever heard anybody preach on the tabernacle in any other setting? Anybody? All right, uh, uh, Brother Gary. Uh, so it's just not something that's talked about and investigated, but I don't... You know, this is just a wonderful subject for us to look into. Now, the text then for tonight is Exodus chapter 28, and I want us to read the first four verses, and then we'll get more reading into the chapter as we go along in the sermon. Exodus 28 and verse number 1. And take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother, for glory and for beauty. And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate and an ephod, and a robe, and a broidered coat, a mitre, and a girdle. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron thy brother and his sons, that he may minister unto me 
in the priest's office. Why is there so much detail in the scriptures about the clothing of the priest? Well, first, these clothes were to set him apart from the people and from ordinary priests that served in the tabernacle. As the scripture says, they were for glory and beauty, and this was for the dignity of the, of the priest's office. Now, early last year, my nephew retired from the Navy after 29 years. Uh, he was a command master chief, which is the highest rank that enlisted personnel uh, can attain. And I'm not sure of all the, the designations that the Navy uses, but I know that he was extraordinary even among master chiefs because if he had stayed in the Navy, the next step for him was to become the, the right-hand man of the highest admiral in the Navy. So he was what you might call a Navy VIP. And you could tell from his dress uniform, from the regalia, the medals, the, the ribbons, the pins, and, the, and just the many stripes that he had down his sleeve, that he wasn't an ordinary sailor. And that uniform that he wore was quite impressive. When Nathan graduated from basic training at Great Lakes, uh, my nephew came to support him, and he came wearing that, that blue dress uniform with all the medals. And it was interesting how other recruits, how wide-eyed they were when they got to meet him and talk with him. Well, if, if my nephew Tim had worn civilian clothes, nobody would know who he was. Without that uniform, he wouldn't stand out, and he wouldn't be any more special than any other relative that showed up with a flannel shirt and overcoat. But it, but it was appropriate for him to wear the clothing that gave him dignity and showed the magnitude of his accomplishments. Now, similarly, the high priest of Israel wore beautiful clothes for honor and glory, but the difference in the honor and the glory was that it's not for him, but it's for who he represents, and that is for the Lord Jesus Christ. And his clothing reflected the majesty of God. I think that my nephew Tim, who's a very good Christian, he also believed that what he achieved was for the glory of God. I think he believed what Paul said, everything that you, all that you do, do all to the glory of God. But this expensive clothing of the priest, the fine needlework, the threads of gold, the jewels, all of that is meant to say something about the God that we serve. Well, all of these things, thinking about this um, and the way that God mixes things into your thinking as you study and prepare, it reminds me of an incident. I, I just barely mentioned this to you. I didn't get into the whole story. But it reminded me of an incident that happened a few weeks ago that I received an email from one of the staff of the First Baptist Church in Hammond, Indiana. And if you're not familiar with them, this is the church that was the, where Jack Hiles was the pastor. And this staff person was looking for a church in our area, I presume because there was a member of that church that was moving here and he wanted to have some place that he could recommend for these folks to go. So he had a, a list of questions for me that I thought was quite interesting. There wasn't one question about our doctrine. There wasn't one question about soteriology and ecclesiology. There was nothing asked about philosophy of ministry. Those are all questions that I would ask before I would recommend um, somebody's church to one of our members. But instead, he asked questions about music and about Bible versions. Now, those things are okay. That's not a problem. But there is one question that he asked that stood out to me. He asked, what do you wear? Is your clothing traditional 
or is it modern? And I'd never really heard the question asked that way before because as far as I know, everything that people wear is modern unless you're Amish or something. But what he was driving at was this. This was, his, this was his, in his thinking, and I know it was, what he wanted to know, do your women wear dress or do they wear slacks? Do they wear pants? Do your teenagers wear culottes or do they wear shorts? Now, you see, that's a very big issue with them. Their soteriology stinks, but sanctification issues, those are sacrosanct. So they believe that you've got to be holy, and to be holy, the clothing that you wear will break you or it will make you according to your value to them in their ministry. So they've taken something that you could legitimately ask. Not necessarily anything wrong with the question, but they've turned it into a doctrine that goes beyond the Scriptures. And I thought it was interesting that he also said that no church should dictate what its members wear. But he still wanted to know, what do your members wear? And so I would think about five minutes in their ministry would tell you that they dictate what their members wear. My point tonight is not that what we wear about what we wear to church, but how we honor Christ from the heart. And how you honor Christ from the heart is much more important than an outward show of self-righteousness. Now, although... I will say, I do believe that leaders of the people should be dignified in their office and what they wear. Oh, I don't think I should come to the pulpit in flip-flops and, and skinny jeans and ratty t-shirts. That's not dignified. Now, if you go someplace else, uh, another part of the world, you know, the dress might not be a suit and tie that I have on tonight, but no matter where you go in the world, there's a difference between the formal and the informal. Everybody knows that. People know the difference between shabby and dignity. Now, bringing this thing back to the priest, he put on his clothing for glory and beauty, and that clothing dignified him as a priest of the holy God. Now, on the other hand, Christ in his priesthood wouldn't need to put on any special clothing to, to dignify him. Instead, whatever he puts on, he dignifies that clothing. Now, going on, we're talking, we're talking here about, uh, in, in this chapter, about various articles of the priest's clothing. And thus far, we've talked about two of the articles. It's been a few weeks since we've been in this. So I just want to mention them briefly to you. The first that we spoke of was the fine linen. And this stood for the purity of Christ. This is actually found at the end of the chapter. This is the underneath garment that was worn next to the body. And in Scripture... Fine white linen always stands for righteousness. Now, in this particular part, there are two aspects of righteousness are displayed in the clothing. The first would be the personal righteousness of the priest, that he must be a man that was dedicated uh, to living a holy life. He must be an example of clean living and godliness. Then secondly, there's a display of the righteousness of Christ, and it is his righteousness that enables ours. Uh, you've heard me teach the subject many times that there are actually two righteousnesses in Christ. He is first intrinsically righteous, and that's because he's God. Righteousness is his character. But that's not the righteousness that he gives to us. In our justification, we have the earned righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to us by faith, and that earned righteousness is what he obtained by keeping all of God's law perfectly in his life. 
And so that's the righteousness that we need because we can't keep it perfectly. We need Christ's sacrifice to satisfy our debt of sin. But we also need what we call a positive righteousness so that we don't incur the debt again. And this is what the merits of Christ's righteousness are for. His perfect obedience to the law is given to us because even in our salvation, we can't keep that perfectly. So righteousness is first. That has to be put on first as the foundation of all the other garments. And without righteousness upholding the work of Christ, then everything fails. So righteousness and sanctification, that undergirds our standing with God. We must be made worthy, and Christ in his life and death make us worthy. Then next, holding the tunic in place was the girdle, and this stands for the service of Christ. The girdle is a belt that's not worn on the outside, although there was one worn on the outside, which we'll get to later. But this, this belt that we're talking about here, the girdle, was placed underneath all the other garments that would hold that white tunic in place and close to the body so that his clothing wouldn't hinder his movements. The girdle represents preparedness. It represents strength and service. God said to Isaiah, Isaiah 11, verse 5, Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. In the 22nd chapter, I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle. And I will commit thy government into his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Now, I've been over that scripture before. And this reference is to Hilkiah, who was the high priest during the time of Isaiah. And uh, it's, it's an obvious reference to, to Christ as Hilkiah represented Christ in the priesthood. Then the girdle, you remember, also reminds us of the foot-washing incident of John 13 when Jesus girded himself with a towel. That is, he took a towel and tied it around his waist, and then as a servant, he bent down to wash, to wash the disciples' feet. And Jesus always taught by example, as he did there, and he was always willing to do what he asked others to do. And he said, well, if I'm the Lord and the Master, and I wash your feet, then what should you do? speaking to the disciples. What should you do in your relation to each other? Your brothers and sisters in Christ, so how should you treat each other? Well, again, the high priest was a wonderful sight in all these beautiful garments. He had the respect of men, and yet at the same time, he was taking the part of a servant. He was acting for them in the priesthood, representing them, uh, making the sacrifices, but he was also their servant. Well, that leads us right into the next article of clothing that we find in verses 31 and 32. If you want to look there, uh, it says uh, there towards the end of the chapter, And thou shalt make the robe of the ephod all of blue, and there shall be a hole in the top of it, in the midst thereof. It shall have a binding of woven work round about the whole of it, as it were the hole of a havergen, that it be not rent. Now, thirdly then, is the robe of the ephod. And this stands for the unceasing work of Christ. Now I have a, a picture for you of the priest in all of his garments. Uh, and I wanna, I'll, I'll point this out to you. It's, it's easy for you to see, but we'll, we'll get a pointer here. This, this part right here, this, all that, that's the ephod. And this part underneath, the blue, and you see it here on the arms, that is the robe of the ephod. And that's the part that we're, that we're talking about here. 
Now, that robe is, I said, worn over the, the white linen, and uh, it's that multicolored piece that you see. That's the ephod itself, and the other part is called the robe of the ephod. Now, you notice that the text, the te- in the text at the end of verse 32, the Scripture says, It shall have a binding of woven work round about the whole of it, as it were the whole of a havergen, that it be not rent. Does anybody know what a havergen is? And no fair looking at smartphones. Anybody know what a habergen is? Well, a habergen is, is a coat of chain mail. Now, you've probably, you've probably seen those in pictures or in the movies. Now, uh, I'm sure when I, when I talk about this, this coat of mail, that Bob thinks of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and where you have King Arthur and all of his, uh, all of his uh, soldiers, and they're pretending like they're riding horses, and they're clapping. I don't know if you guys have seen that or not, but... But anyway, so I have another picture, and this one's for Bob. And uh, you, if you see the guys in the background a little bit there, uh, they've got on a chain mail. And I think that's what that is around King Arthur's, King Arthur's neck right there. And I'm, I've already asked God for forgiveness for showing this picture, but I knew of no other way to reach Bob's heart on this to get him to understand what I was talking about. So I had to show the picture. Well, the priest didn't wear a coat of mail. Um, the habergen refers to the tight weave that's at the top of the robe where his head would slip through it. It was very tightly woven so that it wouldn't tear through many, many years of taking off and putting on this ephod. So this ephod, robe of the ephod rather, is one solid piece of blue material that slipped over the head and worn over the white tunic. Well, then what is the significance of the robe of the ephod. I think we need to get rid of that picture before I go on. Uh, What's the significance of the robe of the ephod? Well, let's start with its color. What does its color say about Christ? Well, the color of it is blue, and that stands for Christ's heavenly character. Blue is the predominant color in the tabernacle. Inside the tent of the tabernacle, the curtains were made of fine linen and they were sewed with blue and purple and scarlet, but blue was the base color of all of it. Now, in this next picture, you can see the... I have a picture of the veil that separates the, the holy place from the most holy place, and the background of that, the predominant color of it, is blue. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author explains the significance of that, of that veil, and he says in verses 19 and 20, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So that veil represents the flesh, it represents the body of Jesus Christ, and it's through the flesh, that is through his bodily suffering and death that we're enabled to enter. It's through that that veil um, that we are enabled to enter God's, God's heavenly presence. So that veil is his flesh, that shows his humanity. But the color of it is predominantly blue, and that shows his deity. And the reason that it's prominently blue is because first and foremost, foremost we must remember that Christ is God. That even though he was man, he, was a first, he is first God, and he came to us from heaven. So the priest wore this color of blue to show that his work was the work of of heaven. Now we know that when Moses received uh, all of the instructions for the tabernacle, 
The Bible says that what he got was patterned after things that are made in heaven. Now, if you'll take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 8, uh, we can read about this and tie it into the work of Christ as our high priest. So in Hebrews chapter 8, and beginning in verse number 1, Hebrews 8 verse 1, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. In other words, uh, Jesus, not being from the tribe of Judah, uh, would not have the right to be a priest because the priests come from Levi. So if, if he was earthly, he wouldn't be able to be a priest. Verse 5, who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. Now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also is he the mediator of a better covenant, which is established upon better promises. Now the main point that I want to make from that reading is the tabernacle and the priest, they are all pictures of heavenly things. So we always have this reminder of the priest in the blue that he's doing God's business. Now another interesting part of that is that blue was one of the color of the people's clothing and a very significant part of their clothing. Um, the fellow in Hammond asked me this question. He said, what do your people wear? And if he was to ask that question to an Israelite, an Israelite would say something like, oh, something borrowed in something blue. And that's because blue was the color of everyday clothing. So if you wanted to color match, then you better like blue. So they put this, this border of blue on their garments, and that showed that they belonged to the God of heaven. And the blue on the border of the garment symbolized their obedience to God. We find this in Numbers 15, verses 38 to 40. Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes in the border of their garments throughout their generations and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue and it shall be unto you for a fringe that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them and that you seek not after your own heart and your own eyes after which you used to go a-whoring that ye may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. Or you remember in the New Testament that the Pharisees made much to do about this border. They claimed to be guardians of the law and to show that they were. They took this command very, very seriously. But they weren't holy. They were hypocritical. But to make themselves look more holy than they actually were, they enlarged the blue border of their garments. Matthew 23, 5, Jesus accused them. He said, but all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. So that means that the part of the, of the garment where the border was, it's wider than it normally would be because after all, the Pharisees, we all know, were superlative in righteousness. And that's what I thought of when I received the questions for the man in Hammond that there is much hypocrisy to contend with here because they want to look holy. So they have all the right clothes. They enlarge the borders of their garments. 
But then when we look into what goes behind all of that, we would find that the previous two pastors were anything but holy. One was an adulterer. The other one was a child molester. Now, I hope that the current pastor is not that way, but I'm sorry to say it does sound like that church is still concerned about outward holiness because there were no questions asked about doctrines that matter the most. So this is the idea behind the ribbon of blue. Each day an Israelite dressed himself. He was reminded of God in heaven. Now, I've told you, it was impossible for an Israelite to escape this Every day of their life had God at the center. There in the center of the camp is the, is the tabernacle structure. God is in the sky in a pillar of smoke during the daytime and a pillar of fire at night. He's in this column uh, lighting up the night. He's in the clothes that they put on. He's in the priest who makes the sacrifices. God is everywhere to the Israelite. That's the central thing in their lives. Now, the next part of this is one of the most interesting aspects of his clothing. Notice in verses 33 to 35 in Exodus 28. And beneath upon the hem of it, thou shalt make pomegranates of blue and of purple and of scarlet round about the hem thereof, and bells of gold between them round about. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe round about. And it shall be upon Aaron to minister, and his sound shall be heard when he goeth in unto the holy place before the Lord, and when he cometh out, that he die not. Now our next picture will show you this. This is the bottom of the robe of the ephod, and you see around it, the little shining part there that's depicted for us is uh, each of those is a bell and a pomegranate, alternating bell and pomegranate. So what are these pomegranates for? What do they stand for? Well, the pomegranates stand for fruits of perfection. First of all, it stands for the fruitfulness of Canaan. Remember that God promised Israel that he would give them a land that was flowing with milk and honey. He said, this is a land that's very fruitful. It's a land with olive trees, a land with vineyards. And when they went into Canaan, they would receive what they didn't plant. But God had it all ready for them. All they needed to do is go in to possess it. They have a land tilled and it's growing from day number one. All they need to do is go in and take over. Now you remember when the 12 spies went in to spy out the land, they saw the fruitfulness of Canaan. Numbers thirteen twenty-three, And they came unto the brook of Eshcol and cut down from thence a branch of one cluster of grapes and they bear it between two upon a staff. And they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. Now there in the scripture it points out uh, it took two men to carry just one cluster of grapes. That's how fruitful that the land was. Now pomegranates on the robe of the priest's garment spoke of that abundance of the land. That the land would produce well. And God promised that if they would continue and they were faithful and they would always obey him, then they would continue to have these bountiful harvest. Uh, nearly 10 years ago now, Gary and I made the pilgrimage to uh, Israel. And uh, one of my favorite memories there was the food. The amounts of vegetables and, and, and all the fruits and everything. It was just amazing. So at nightly dinner... Uh, they would have all of these fruits and vegetables out in abundance. And Gary can tell you that I pigged out on tomatoes and all those, all those different kinds of stuff. I mean, I, I didn't eat the normal desserts. I didn't go for the cake and all that, which they had a lot of that too. My dessert 
after the meal was always the fresh fruits and the vegetables. Israel produces an abundance of crops. And you can stand on Mount Carmel and look down the valley of Jezreel and it stretches for miles and miles and miles like just nearly like the Central Valley of California, all these fruits and vegetables. And the pomegranates, that's a symbol of this fruitfulness. But I remind you that on the, on the robe, they're not real pomegranates. They would wither and rot if they were. So these are images of pomegranates, and they're made in all these assorted colors, so they're blue and purple and scarlet, and what you have here is just an outstanding fashion statement in all these different colors that are uh, on the robe and many different uh, articles of clothing. Well, you may wonder, how can we take that and apply it to New Testament Christianity? Because that's our purpose. We want to find out how do we get in the picture of Christ here and how do we make that apply to how we live today. Well, that's, this, this all stands for service. That when we serve God, we bear fruit. And those fruits are fruits of perfection. That is, they're the good works of God. They're works that are enabled by God, so they are His good works. When Jesus told the parable of the sower... He spoke of four ways that the gospel is received. The first three are not good. He said some seeds fall by the wayside, some fall on the rocks. And then some, he says, fall among thorns, as he describes in Luke 8.14. And that which fell among thorns are they when which they have heard go forth and are choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. To hear the words of Christ and to believe the words of Christ always yields fruits of perfection that cannot be choked out. And if a Christian does not bear fruit, it means that he is disobedient. Now, they're, they're, if you know someone who says, I am a Christian, but you see no fruit, there's only two possibilities for him. Number one, he's not saved. Number two, he's disobedient. That is... He's either one or the other. He's either not saved or he's a disobedient Christian. I'm afraid the former is more true than the latter. The first condition is permanent. Where there is no faith, there will be no fruit. The second one is a temporary condition. And it must be a temporary condition because there is no Christian that can go forever without bearing fruit. He can't because we're saved to be sanctified and to serve Christ. That's our purpose. So the seed that falls on the bad ground, one where there is no faith, that's never going to grow. But faithful belief, faithful obedience, rather, always yields fruits of perfection. Now, what are the fruits? Well, you know the scriptures on this, Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with affections, and lust. These are the fruits of the one who lives in us. And who has these? Well, those, he says, who have crucified the flesh with its lust. Well, in other words, those who are obedient unto righteousness. Now, I need to bring in another theme here that's expressed in the pomegranates, that everything that Christ did, when we think about him, everything that Christ did was perfect, that he completed all of his work Perfectly, As our high priest, he prayed this way in John 17, 4, I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And when he died on the cross, his last words were, it is finished. That is, the work was done, the work of redemption was accomplished, he, his sacrifice 
ended all Old Testament sacrifices so that none of them ever needed to be made again. That was perfect redemption for all time. Now, the redemptive work of Christ on the cross needs no additions. You don't, you don't put anything with that in order to be saved. He supplies all that we need so that everyone, everyone he died for receives the benefit of that work without doing anything to supplement it. Now, here's where I'm going with this. And that is repentance and faith are not supplements to the atonement. That's not something that we add to it, that we give to it. No, all of that is provided in the atonement. And so, in other words, Christ finished his work and he accomplished whatever needs to be done. All that needs to be done. So, we are brought into his benefits. He's done all of it for us. Now, this is what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, 11. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Now you need to catch three very important parts of that verse, or three aspects. First, he shall see his travail and be satisfied. Secondly, he shall justify those that he travailed for. And then thirdly, it says he bore their iniquities. So how is he satisfied, how would he be satisfied if the cross yielded less than what he expected? Now across the world, the greater part of people dies without hearing the gospel. And so is Christ satisfied in his death that he did nothing for them? That he bore their sins and yet he gets no fruit of the work that he put into it? Well, of course not. We can't support that. He redeems all that he died for. And if not, then he gets less fruit than expected. Now, we would say, well, God's not a very good farmer. If he sows a lot of seed and he can't get all the fruit that he expects, that's a poor farmer. Now, this fellow in Hammond didn't ask me about that, and he wouldn't like my answer because their doctrine is that Christ is more of a failure than he is a success. He tries to save, but they, people just won't let him. Now, I think that's a pretty important question to ask. All, I would ask a question, are all redeemed that Christ died for? I say yes, they say no. And so that's a very critical doctrine that flows out of Christ's perfection that gets pinched off in this insufficient scheme of salvation. So that gospel is deficient when Christ is not. So I would certainly advise members of Berean to stay away from churches that say that Christ badly misses securing all the fruits of the perfections of the cross. So this gives us a picture of Christ in the pomegranates. He, uh, the redeemed are his fruits. But then there's also a picture of our fruit. To apply to the Christian, not only Christ's fruit, but there's our fruit. And it's Christ who enables our fruit, just as we read in the Holy Spirit does, just as we read in Galatians 5. Then further, we have this in Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Why does a true Christian produce fruit? It's a very simple answer. Because God is in him. 
Philippians 2.13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 1 verse 6, Being confident in this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Now strangely, the man from Hammond didn't ask me about this either. And he wouldn't have liked my answer on this, because I know he takes a different stand. Now I hope it's still not this way, but the history of his church is to do this, and that is to get people to pray the sinner's prayer. Get people to say that prayer by hook or crook, and then when they've done it, slap a salvation badge on them, give them a certificate, count them as converts, whether they produce even a puny peanut of good works. So you have to ask, did they believe anything about Christ? Did he deliver them from their sins? Or did he not? Did he, did he make them holy? Did he sanctify them? Is Christ the Lord of their lives? And they'll say, well, that doesn't really matter. They don't need to produce. And that's the established doctrine of their church. They don't need to produce, but while they're not producing, they certainly will look better in a haircut without piercings and with floor-length blue jean skirts. They'll not hear of lordship salvation because they call themselves grace guys. God saves by His grace, but apparently God is not able to sanctify by His grace. So I think those are questions that need to be asked before sending a Berean to one of their churches. Do you believe that you can be saved without surrendering to the Lordship of Christ? And I already know the answer to that question. So Christ's people produce fruits to perfection. Now, of course, this now this does beg a question about those members of Berean who say they understand all these things, but they've jumped ship on dress, and they look like the cat wore them out in the bushes last night. So what about those who neither act nor look like Christians and are smug in their rejection of that so-called manufactured sanctification? Well, don't count them as saved. The word on that, their word on it, it's not good enough. Show some fruits unto perfection. You don't get a pass in smug self-righteousness either. There are questions that need to be asked, and people better have the right answers to the questions. So I'm not one-sided on this thing. I reject manufactured sanctification, but I don't reject a heart-changing, heartfelt, God-led sanctification. If you don't have it, you're not going to look it. If you don't have it, you're not going to act it. Christ's people are pomegranates. And they're real pomegranates. They don't wither and rot. They're, they're, they're true converts. A true convert is not a true convert if he withers and rots after accepting Christ. Now the robe of the ephod, this is all about heaven. Christ came down from heaven to take people to heaven. That's his purpose. That's what he does. Not one of them rots in hell. Now there's another part. There are pomegranates and there are bells. Oh, the bells. That's, that's just too good for me to shove into a short amount of time, so we're not going to talk about them tonight. The symbolism of the bells is just a fascinating part of this. We have garments for glory and for beauty, and they certainly are because Christ is altogether lovely. Ask me, if you want to ask me questions, ask me questions about the doctrines of Jesus. Ask me questions... Um, about 
who Jesus is and what he did and what do we think about his death on the cross and what, what do we do to worship him? I'd rather answer those kinds of questions and make that my wisdom, redemption, and sanctification. I'm better on those kinds of questions than I am questions about culottes. So you can keep those if you want. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you, Lord, for the word. Um, what you've shown us about our Savior, Jesus Christ, these Old Testament types and figures, the shadows, just wonderful pictures that we get of Christ. It's worth our time to dig into it and see what they all mean and then compare them back to what we see in the New Testament. Thank you for your people that are willing to listen and um, to learn these doctrines of the faith and take them down deeply into, soul, into the soul that makes us better people for you. We thank you for that, Lord. Bless our people uh, tonight. Be with us through this week, and we give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.